Hello and welcome to the Eastman's Predator Pros Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Nimnick. Great to be back on the mic with you guys for another episode. This is one I've been waiting to bring you guys for a long time. Got a good buddy of mine, Lang Bangerter, on this podcast. Um, you know, Lane and I won the world championships back in 2014. Um, just a great dude. Um, he's he's a coyote killing fanatic. Um was actually a government trapper for for almost 20 years, maybe 20 years, a little bit longer than 20 years, maybe. But uh, either way, he's always had just some fascinating stories. I've always felt like just a kid listening to him tell these stories um, of aerial gunning and some some wolf reintroduction stories from Idaho and just crazy stuff. So it's going to be fun. Um, like I said, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a lot of that stuff and and just the history of the government trapping program and and things like that. So should be a good one. But before we jump into this one, I want to thank you guys for listening, uh, making this the number one predator hunting podcast out there. Your reviews on Spotify, your comments, your reviews on iTunes, all that stuff goes a, a very long way. You know, my goal is to to be able to continue to bring you guys great content. And of course, you know, this takes time and energy and money. So we couldn't do it without the sponsors, unfortunately. So. Um, we got to thank them because, you know, these people that, that sponsor this podcast are sponsoring you as a predator hunter. They stand behind predator hunting. And that's, that's a big thing nowadays. You know, a lot of companies that, that sell products for hunters won't touch coyote hunting with a 10 foot pole, you know, because of the, the backlash from the anti-hunting community. But I'll tell you what, everybody that sponsors this podcast could care less. You know, they understand your passion for this sport. And uh, I hope you, uh, you know, if you're in the market to support one of these companies that you do so because they're here to support us, you know, and, and this episode is brought to you by a couple good ones, Silencer Central and Cryptech. Now, the suppressor game is, is growing rapidly. I'm sure most of you listening to this are probably already in the suppressor game. If you're not, you know, there's no better time than now. You know, Silencer Central has pretty much revolutionized the way that you can get access to suppressors. You know, everything now is done directly through their website, which is cutting edge. You know, you've never been able to do that up to this point. Um, you know, you can jump onto the Silence Essential website. You can order your suppressor. You can order the $200 tax stamp. You can do all your paperwork through there. You can do your fingerprint card. You can do everything that you need to do right through their website. They will submit everything to the ATF for you. You have, obviously still have to wait. They'll even do a free NFA gun trust for you as well which is pretty significant. You know, you have a lawyer do that. You might be looking up to $500 to have a lawyer draw that up for you. So that's a huge benefit. And then once your paperwork comes back from the ATF, they will ship that suppressor straight to your door. So, I mean, you, it doesn't get any easier than that other than just the weight. So there's no better time now than to jump into the suppressor game. If you're, if you're not, um, they offer a full line of suppressors. Um, their own banish line is, is very successful line of suppressors. Um, I'm kind of excited about the new Banish Backcountry. You know, this is a 30 cal suppressor and it weighs in at 7.8 ounces. That's kind of a big thing, you know, when you're talking about putting some extra weight on the end of your gun. 7.8 ounces is, is pretty light. So uh, if you're in the market for a suppressor, don't want all the hassle of going down through your normal, uh, your local gun dealer. Hey, go to Silencer Central and check out just how easy the process is to get your hands on a suppressor. Now, when we're talking about websites, hey, got to mention Cryptech all new website, um, easy navigation, uh, just an updated look. I love it. And, you know, for, for you guys that are, you know, getting in, you know, maybe looking, Hey, I'm, I'm in the market for some new hunting clothes, clothing. Um, you know, maybe I need some stuff for early season, late season, you know, Cryptech offers it all. You know, they got a lot of cool different patterns. 
one really sticks out to me. The one that I use for coyote hunting is the Highlander pattern. I really think, you know, it has a lot of the tans and browns and the lighter colors, not a lot of darks, you know, seems like us as coyote hunters, we're usually out there in the grass and in the sage and, and not a lot of dark trees and things like that, that maybe some of the big game hunters um, find. So, you know, check out the Highlander pattern. They offer about anything you could find, you know, or anything you could want in that pattern. And then obviously the snow, man, we love hunting coyotes in the snow. Um, you know, jump on that wraith pattern. You can find that snow covers phenomenal. I, this winter alone, I probably, I wore out a set of these snow covers just because I wore them for two months straight hunting coyotes. We had snow cover that long, but, uh, they're thin. They're easy. Full leg zippers on the pants. You can put them on and off easy. Um, yeah, comes with a set of gators. So yeah, check that out. It's the wraith pattern. W R A I T H. That's how they spell that. Um, but that's their, that's their snow camo pattern. So yeah, if you're in the market for some, some new camo, head on over to cryptech.com and see what they have to offer. Well, Lane, I tell you what, I'm like a kid in a candy store, man. I've been waiting a long time to get, get you on my <laughs> podcast, man. It is a pleasure to have you on. Great to be here with you, Jeff. What a great <laughs> friendship we have over the years. So it's wonderful to be on your program. It's been fun, man. I, you know, early on, you know, what did we probably meet probably back in maybe 2010 or 2011 on a wolf hunting trip to Idaho, huh? Yeah. I met this Nebraska guy. <laughs> you know what the N on Nebraska hat means, by the way, don't you? Oh, I, I can't imagine it what for, it stands for knowledge. No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, great, my great friend from Nebraska, just honored to be on your show, Jeff. And we'll, Thanks for your friendship. Heck yeah. You know, you know, we've spent a lot of windshield time over the years doing various adventures, whether it's hunting the worlds or like you said, chasing wolves or just driving around shooting coyotes. And I've always been fascinated by your, just the path in life you took, you know, just your, your whole story is cool, but specifically your government trapper days, you know, you've, I've just, like I said, driving, riding in a car with you. I've always been fascinated to listen to your stories um, and I thought, you know what? I think everybody listening to this would be fascinated as well. So that's what the gist of this is going to be about, man. We're going to talk about the good old days, right? We are. And there's a real bond between people that call in a coyote together or chase a lion together. Once you do that, you've got something that links you. You can't take it away. But you yeah. and I have a lot of that. And it, it extends to our whole family. We all appreciate you. We all feel like we know you. And uh, we we can start talking about the good old days, how I got into this crazy route in life that took me on different paths, but where <laughs> I started professionally, yeah. So I'm assuming like probably most of us, you know, you started hunting as a kid, I'm guessing, but where where did you really say, you know what, I, I just love killing coyotes? Yeah, I always had a gun in my hand, always reloading since I was 12, you know, single shot. Everything is 20 gauge single shot, 22 single shot. Uh, we had a lot of livestock in our foothills around our house. And uh, I was probably about 13 years old. This single shot, anybody who had a single shot was deadly with it. But I was always, I was always a good shot. You oh, know yeah. that. Heck yeah. I know Jeff, everybody, Jeff is a great shot. So I can say I know what one is. Saw a female coyote during lambing season. Pulled back my little boink on my 22 single shot. She's about <laughs> 60 yards away and shot her between the eyes is that your and first ever coyote my first ever coyote <laughs> right between the eyes with the 22 huh? man named kenny beck 
came down, the herder took the coyote over to it. The guy whipped out a hundred dollar bill. And I thought, I, I thought I could never spend that much money ever. So <laughs> that was my first, we had a, we ever get, had a government trapper in our town named Dale Booth and he was legendary. He was so big in my mind that I, I watched him skin coyotes that he'd taken and, and, you know, he's a very quiet guy, but I, I became acquainted with him, but he was, you just need to know how big he was in my mind. And how cool that was to be around him. Yeah, that's pretty wild. You know, I've talked about it before on my podcast, my first experience with a government trapper, you know, I had an English class in high school and we had to do a job shadow. You know, the, you know what I'm talking about? Like, yeah. you know, those assignments. So I found the government trapper from a town that, that was service Stark County. And I actually rode around with him for a whole day. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I mean, all, all we did is go around and check M44, and, you know, cyanide guns yeah. and, and pick up dead coyotes. But, you know, it was very, pretty, it was a pretty badass similar, uh, deal. Very similar. I hung around with Dale and finally said, hey, Mr. Booth, can I go with you? I got a horse because everything in Utah at that time is on horseback. And he goes, yeah. But uh, by the time I was 22, I'd gone out with him several times, and he was very good. And he got promoted as supervisor, this government trapper, Dale. And he came to me one day and said, I was just this newlywed guy, 22, framing houses. He said, do you want my job? you want my district? And uh, I said, yeah, in a heartbeat, I'll take it. So he said, you can have my district. I'm the boss now. And I was hired by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as a district field assistant or an agent, but uh, I wasn't even—I didn't even have my college degree yet. And uh, my salary was fourteen thousand sixty-six dollars a year, <laughs> and I—and I didn't care. I mean, I—they—I walked in the first day, it was July twenty-seventh, nineteen eighty-five. Put my hand on the Bible. I was sworn in by our state director. His name is Bob Reynolds. Uh, sworn in with a couple of other guys. They gave me a camp trailer similar to a sheep camp. They gave me a box of shotgun ammo, a Browning Auto 5, kind of a worn out shotgun. That's yeah, all they yeah. were aerial gunning. They gave me uh, a horse trailer and a pickup and showed me on a map where I was to go get rid of the coyotes or control coyotes for predator control an agent <laughs> of the u.s fish and wildlife service so oh, that's wild that's it wild. was wild time it was whip and spur and dealing with sheep men cattlemen not as much trouble with, with cattle uh, but in, as there were lambs on the range older sheep on the winter range and then lambs in the spring our job is to keep them alive and i always had I believe we were doing a lot to benefit wildlife too. I wanted to see more deer, more elk, more upland game birds. I believe in abundant flocks and herds. So I, I felt like I was dual purpose, protecting livestock and enhancing wildlife by keeping the flock protected from the, keeping the, the lamb out of the mouth of the wolf. So to yeah, speak. yeah. <laughs> now, so, now mid eighties with that, you know, you and I have talked about the, the methods that, you know, the government trapper has taken over the years. Was that still, was that kind of the new conventional way now, or were they still using more of the, the poisons and things like that at that time? Yeah, it's very important to, to understand the background of predator control as a wildlife management tool in America. The, the first toxicant that I'm aware of, the history of predator control is this, goes like this. Everybody was given a bottle of strychnine, strychnine say in 1900, 1906 to 1916. 
you had a bottle of pills and uh, people would wrap it in meat and they, it killed bobcats, coyotes, whatever ate it. But coyotes became averse to it. It had a taste. They finally figured out that with strychnine, they could not kill coyotes. So by the middle, of, before World War II, they developed a compound 1080. It's, uh, it's known for good or evil. It was com it's tasteless. It's odorless. It became the government's mode to protect livestock in the 17 Western states. And there became big programs of, you know, baiting and dropping bait, which was, you know, cows that were injected with this. They were butchered, but they were injected with compound 1080 in liquid form. Again, tasteless, odorous, odorless. Each state had to give 1,750 cows a year and 1,750 sheep a year for bait material. No kidding. They literally, after World War II, laced the Intermountain West with compound 1080, where they ran livestock on the forest lands, the, the Bureau of Land Management, private property. And that literally broke the backbone of the coyote population in the United States. When you really didn't have coyotes everywhere, the Western U.S., they were there, but they weren't, you know, they had not expanded. So that broke it. Come to 1970, I'll shorten this up. You started well, hey, back up, back up real quick, though. Yeah, so yeah, to, yeah. to explain this a little bit more, I mean, you're talking about injecting livestock. I mean, they would load these these dead cows or dead sheep up in like cargo planes and inject yeah. them and just fly over the landscape, dumping them out every few miles kind of a deal. Or how'd they, how'd they even do that? They just kick them out of aircraft. And so the coyotes would eat the carrion. But the problem with 1080 is whatever ate the, the coyote, the eagle would peck on the, the coyote. Eagle, yeah. also die. A mouse would nibble on something. It would also. <laughs> so it, it did. Compound 1080 had in inappropriate doses uh, had a residual effect in the environment. And it wasn't considered acceptable by 1970. You had FIFRA. The Federal Insecticide Rodenticide Fungicide Act, which regulated all these toxicants that we need or don't need. And we had things like the Endangered Species Act. We had National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. In 1970, the nation started to say, what can we do that's more environmentally acceptable? And for the livestock industry, they they voted for a trade-off. They said, we will go to conventional predator control we will lay down compound 1080 but you got to give us 20 30 times the budget for conventional we're going to hire more men and women and they're going to have traps snares m44 cyanide guns aerial gunning with the idea that we're going to be more target selective we're going to try to get the offending animal or offending coyote populations and the livestock industry bought off on it they said but it was probably 30 times the cost of what they did before. And we all know biologically what happened. Coyotes are the most incredible animal. I love each and every one. <laughs> I try to shoot as many as yeah, I possibly can. Even the dead ones. <laughs> we, we have a lot of respect for them. I don't call them anything but coyotes. I don't call them dogs. I don't call them SOBs. I, I really <laughs> appreciate There's not an animal biologically as adapted adaptable as a coyote so this is the great day of the coyote they've expanded to the northernmost reaches of alaska and canada clear in the into south america throughout mexico everywhere in the united states 
they do well in cities. They eat watermelons, they eat cow crap. They they can kill an elk. People don't know that, but that's been documented. They can they kill deer, they kill their prey. Uh they'll scavenge, they will eat mice, you know, they they will live off about anything. And so the the conventional predator control did not succeed in limiting coyote populations by any stretch. We were out outcompeted by this amazing predator. Now, during those early days, you know, back in the 80s, I mean, did you ever like sit through seminars or did they have courses that you went through that that taught you about coyotes? Like what you're looking for, like how like the life cycle of coyotes, how these coyotes can, you know, reproduce quicker, you know, and create bigger litters due to the, you know, the pressure you put on them and things like that? Not not really, but there was a lot of science that I followed that talked about that. A lot of things I, I have, you know, a lot of scientific studies explain why we're seeing what we're seeing. Coyotes will release more more follicles, more ovaries, depending on how much pressure is put up upon them. Where they intensely control them in Wyoming, they'll have large litters like 8, 9, 12. I've seen up to 13. Where they're not where they aren't don't have pressure, they'll they'll have like four pups, three, four pups, probably four. Yeah. Minimum. So they a lot of they didn't teach me the biology. I was sort of self-taught. It was out there as we began to have to defend ourselves later in my career, as I became a supervisor, I'll jump to that. We had to figure out why, what's the science behind this and defend it, which I can easily do. Uh, lethal predator control is a vital wildlife management tool. It shouldn't be limited in any way. So they would have for aerial gunning, for example, uh, there's a lot of safety components to that. I was sworn in the, the day that uh, I, you know, with the uh, same day as a guy named uh, Darwin Mabbitt and Glenn Stevenson was the guy I was sworn in with. Uh, those two both died in aerial crashes. I mean, Darwin, was, Darwin Mabbitt was the greatest coyote hunting pilot. I, he's the first guy I ever got in an airplane with. I mean, I was, at my camp one day and the radio came on they said hey my are my gunners sick you want to you want to fly today i said heck yeah <laughs> it was so excited so giddy to get in the airplane we got up darwin landed just on a dirt road in the middle of near the utah nevada border got up we found five coyotes i shot them all fast this browning auto five and he goes hot oh, dang i got myself a new gunner <laughs> So that was my training. <laughs> that was it. He pointed, he pointed, he said, see that tire? Don't shoot that tire because we're in a super cub. It's right below you. It'll be harder to land without that tire. See that wing? Don't shoot that. That's where our gas is. <laughs> see that propeller? You don't want to hit that. You see that strut? You shoot that and we are dead. <laughs> he said, okay, I got it. That's all he said. So I flew with Darwin a lot and it became real serious business, the safety component throughout my career to make sure we we're trained best we could. We lost Jeff Yates with Glenn Stevenson in Utah. Uh, Darwin also died in a crash. Uh, I was in my own crash in 1997 and wasn't hurt at all, but with, was with a, me and my pilot. He flew us into the ground. We did a double flip and 
when we were the snow cushioned us four degrees below zero in Council, Idaho. Every day past January seventh, nineteen ninety seven, is gravy to me. <laughs> but we survived that fine. I didn't have an acre of pain, and be you know it became where in our state I had to instruct everybody on how to do this safely, safely. And how do you air a gun safely? You got to kill the coyote because it gets dangerous. So you're coming in. You you want me to talk a little yeah, bit? Yeah, dang, dang right. Walk me through this because oh, I'm I'm curious to. Little, you're in a tight little compartment. I'm I weigh like two twenty right now. You have some shotgun shells right there in a little pouch. You grab the shotgun over your right shoulder. You got a spare shotgun on your left. Now we're using Benelli Super Black Eagles with F shot three inch magnum or four buck. And the pilots, you'll say, see, I got a coyote. You bring me, I'm a left-hand shooter, and I like to shoot out the right, which isn't normal. Everybody shot out the left window, but I'd flip open the whole thing. It gets windy. You got a helmet on, and you pick up the coyote, and you, I would roll the coyote on the first shot, and I would get five rounds off and put it into the coyote, make sure he wasn't moving. Uh, if you usually, if you're wounded, I mean, the pilot's got to ramp up the RPMs. He'll have you back around in a turn in 13 seconds. So the whole world's spinning while you're reloading the shotgun, trying to hang on to it from <laughs> the wind. It's cold. You know, sometimes you're, the, the, the pilot will say, I see another one, or you'll, you will say, I see another one. Say, I got it. We're calling out power lines if there are any. We're calling out trees. And uh, just saying, I got it. So he brings you in. You go, bam, 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 bam. Every time I get off five rounds. The way I tested my gunners, they took two shots. They weren't going to cut it. <laughs> you had to have those reflexes like Jeff Nimnick has. Yeah, you had to be able to pull that trigger, baby. Pull that trigger. That's the cheap, cheapest <laughs> part of the whole operation. Use those shotgun shells. And I just loved it. I thought it was the greatest. First day they told me I was going to go on a helicopter. I didn't sleep the whole night. I was so excited. <laughs> Got up in a helicopter and told the pilot, well, there's a kit fox. He goes, no, that's a, that's a coyote. <laughs> Everything looks different from the air. Yeah. Yeah. So we, aerial gunning was a big part of what we did, but, but, uh, how did most of those plane crashes happen? Just like planes stalling out or, or was it mostly hitting, hitting power lines and hitting objects and things like that? In, in the turn, you're on the turn, you get going, you can, you can stall. You can have a cable go wrong, even though the pilots walk around those planes every morning to inspect them. It was usually a stall in the turn and they do a flip and they were into the ground. It's gotcha. turning too tight. But you, you, that's again, why you want to hit the coyote. Cause if you got to go back after it, you're coming through your own backwash. The air is bumpy and different. And you got coyotes that are, you have to hit them. They may be running up a hill. They may be running at you. They may be, uh, they, they may stop all of a sudden, no matter what they do, you better hit them. They're going to do funky things. You're going to see them jump to the left, jump to the right. And you're going to see two of them. And if you can get two of them, go ahead, keep them going. Sometimes <laughs> the pilot will have, say, there's three right in a row. And we'd have extended magazines so we could fit a minimum of 10 rounds in the deal. So you just keep pumping away till you run out of ammo. Right down the line. On, man. The, turn, on the turn, you're poking in more ammo and preparing for more. So it got pretty sporty. Was that the big difference between shooting out of an airplane and shooting out of a helicopter was the maneuverability, like you could get back on coyotes quicker kind of a deal? Or 
helicopter is not near as technical, not, not probably not near as dangerous, even though I had a dear, dear friend, a fellow trapper named Shane Cornwall crashed up near up Spanish Fort Canyon. The pilot survived. He didn't, but that was, I don't know exactly what caused that chopper just went down. Choppers lose engines. And so you need to be a place where you can auto rotate and land softly. Sometimes where Shane and his pilot landed was just pine trees and the pine tree got him left four sons behind. So this gets very real. I mean, if, when you know the people who perish in these things, you get to realize this is some of the most hazardous activity I could ever do, but gosh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> Well, I've always, I've always threatened my wife. I got a, a good rancher buddy and, and his dad on a big ranch up outside of Scott's bluff and he has their, they have their own plane. Right. So they right. do some, some predator control out of the airplane over the years, probably, probably not regulated the way it should be, but he's always told me to come on up there and it's always been on my bucket list. And I tell my wife, I'm going to do that. And she says, don't bother coming home. If you get up in that airplane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After my like, crash, I, I came home after my crash. I told my wife, hey, you can see me. I'm alive. I'm doing good. She goes, yeah, what are you talking about? I said, well, we're going to crash today. I didn't want to call you and worry you. About it. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> another time, uh, yeah, another time we hit, had a near crash. Told her about that. But I always wanted to be standing there live in front of her. Because yeah, yeah. It get very real and accidents happen. You have an accident in an airplane or helicopter very unforgiving. So anyway, let so me back talk to this. So you talked yeah. about, you talked about eventually you were a supervisor. You were kind of one of the, the main guys in the aerial gunning program, right? As far as training kind of new government trappers. Yeah. Like how did that work? How did you, how do you even train somebody to shoot a coyote out of an airplane? Yeah. 1985, we were so unregulated. It was the greatest time to be a federal employee. We had, very few rules, no timesheets, no anything. We just a credit card for gas. We just went. They gave me that fourteen thousand sixty-six dollar a year salary, and they gave me twenty-five dollars a month for a night for camping. And I thought that was great. They gave me twelve dollars a month for my dog because we could talk about decoy dogs, and we yeah. always we had. They gave me a hundred dollars a month for a horse because I always needed a horse. So we. We just tried to train the men as best we could and weed through gunners because you can find out quick. Some people, I mean, we all get sick in the plane. Some people just can't handle it because they get sick. Motion sickness is a real deal. Some people are not good shots, cannot have them in the plane. <laughs> and so it was always hard for me to recruit a gunner. I was a trapper in, in Utah and Wyoming. In the summer, I'd go in the Uinta Mountains for all the sheep that would come up to the very high elevation. That was all a horse job. And just, I never felt like I worked a day in my life for the first six years. Then they made me a supervisor in Idaho. And uh, the whole world started to change. Is we had the, we got attacked by environmental groups. You know, they didn't want us doing what we were doing. So we had to really defend that agency and the purpose of it. And it, that took a lot of training. I mean, I might as well have been an attorney at that point. <laughs> I'm still having fun, but not as much fun as those great years as government trapper. So training that aerial gunning was the only way to learn just to go out and shoot coyotes? Or did you guys have like a course? I mean, could you set up a, a practice range 
or or is that not even you just had to go up and do it and and figure it out some of you've talked about negative leads and you know kind of how you have to aim when you're when the airplane's going 60 70 mile an hour and you got a coyote that's running 30 kind of how all that works yeah little tips that's all we had is uh react to it get the coyote killed make sure you get him killed uh wear your safety we talked a lot about safety gear the nomex shield over your face i mean the the gloves everything we call them our burn suits you know yeah yeah we would watch videos where military personnel would sit there and tell you about their they'd sit there and their faces are terribly burnt they would be the instructors and tell you how real it was to wear your safety gear <laughs> they show you their fingers yeah, it's legit, yeah. their faces, and they just put the reality of what you what could happen if you had a fire on an aircraft so we had that type of training but you are not going to that doesn't create a gunner you just have to have somebody who's going to be smart going to wake up in the morning with a clear head athletic like jeff nimnick and <laughs> no yeah. no you jeff you're you're a great shot you have yeah. to be a good shot you cannot miss in that business I would go all summer after a certain coyote and you're going to get one crack at him. So just having good reflexes means a lot. Athleticism means a lot in that airplane. Good hand-eye coordination. People that don't have it are not going to be able to fly safely and be a good aerial gunner. So I was grateful. I I had those things. We, uh, we had that going for us and you could easily weed out the ones that wouldn't. You're too fat. You're not getting in the airplane. (laughs) Every ounce matters. So (laughs) lots of things would show, would come into play with that. Specifically shooting at a coyote. Like what was that airplane? Like when, when they, when they, they bog it down a little bit, right? Like lower the RPMs down. It's dragging a little bit. Like how fast is the airplane going? Probably when they dive. They're probably doing 35, 45, ramping up to shoot 60 miles an hour. They can slow those planes down pretty pretty good. The Husky and the Super Cub. I believe Super Cub is what they've all gone back to. But they slow them down or ramp them up. That's another factor. You just got to – the gunner has to react to whatever that condition will be. You could get pushed. What you're hoping for is never get a downdraft. You usually don't at lower elevations. But it can get bumpy. Uh, don't Don't go in a canyon. We were in them all the time, but I mean, <laughs> canyons, are, canyons are not canyons are not good for aircraft. So it becomes very hazardous. But we we felt invincible. You know how you do. You just yeah, feel, yeah. you feel invincible. <laughs> so when Still, you were when you were coming down on a coyote, you've heard the term like negative lead. I don't know if that's what you guys use, but essentially the coyote's running, the airplane's going. Are you kind of almost hold, you're holding almost behind the coyote a little bit? Put it on there, hold behind a little bit, watch your dust, watch for dust if you have any. Sometimes you don't have dust. Trace the dust. I've seen you do that with very well with rifle. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. Pick, it, pick it up, pick it up, compensate, react, start putting in the, in his ribs. You want to shoot him in the ribs. You see a coyote, see a coyote's tail wagging, forget that one. He's done with. That means yeah, you hit him in shot. the fire. Yeah. yeah. So you you wanted to see that. We said, that one's got a flag. Forget him. He's done with. I <laughs> got a flag. So you, you want to hit him in the ribs. You got people that just shoot him in the hind end. It's not good for the coyote. It's not good for the operation. You can't. And you have people that consistently would break him down the hind end. <laughs> yeah. So you you don't do too much of a negative lead. You just compensate and get the job done. 
that's a successful flight. Now you mentioned and, about shot size. I think you and I've talked about this before. Did you guys do some studies on what was like the preferred shot size out of that shotgun, trying to get coyotes to bleed out faster and, and things yeah, like that? We did. We started with four buck, two and three quarter inch. Four buck was great, but we found that it went around the bones of the coyote. Worked really good. We didn't use three inch magnum for whatever reason, but then we got into using three inch F shot, which went through bone, bone break. That was steel, right? Steel shot. Yeah. F steel shot would go through the bone, cause more bleeding. It was more lethal, but that had a problem because the steel bounces off the rocks and all the terrain that you're flying up around in the Western United States. Yeah. Yeah. So we had, huh? Smells funny in the hangar. It smells like fuel. You'd see it where one had ricocheted back up a pellet. Oh, damn. These planes are made of paper. The fuel tank is made of paper with, you know, <laughs> thin metal there. Yeah. So we, with F-Shot, we found out uh, that has a little bit of a hazard. So you got to be mindful of that. I think, I think they've gone back to four buck, but I think in my book, that would be the all around. I'd go with three inch Magnum four buck. So if you're, if you're out, if you're out calling coyotes right now, you know, when you and I have been hunting and you're running a shotgun, that's your, that's your preferred after all the shotgunning of all the coyotes you've seen. Three inch four buck. I like three inch four buck. It's fine. I still like the F shot for that type of on the ground, but it doesn't have the reach that a four buck has. You put in four buck first, shoot the first four rounds four buck, then you have better have some double lot. We know our shotgunning, Jeff. You can vouch for that. Yeah, yeah. Heck yeah. It's important that when you've got a team, if you're in competition, it's you gotta have a good shotgunner. Oh, heck yeah. That that wins championships, man. It wins the championships, as you well know. <laughs> so while so, while we're on aerial gunning, you, you've told me some crazy, a few crazy stories. Like I know in your mind, we all we all keep track of our own records. Run me through some of your records out of an airplane, out of a helicopter. Oh, a lot of guys have beat have set better records than me, but I have, I have good records. I have eighty eight out of a helicopter in one day. That was for what? That was for deer protection up in Idaho, up at that, Dwarf back then. Yeah, that story is pretty crazy. You got to tell me yeah, that one again. We had we had uh, white-tailed deer were coming onto the reservoir. A lot of snow at Dwarf Shack. This is now thirty years ago, and fishing game actually. Asked us to go up there. Very cold day, Clearwater River, and just saw. I saw a lot of drama that day. I saw a big old buck whitetail out on the snow and ice, just puffing. He squared off with the coyote, and they've been going at it. You can see the coyote's breath, the mule, the white-tailed deer's breath. They're just squared off, and we come over there. I just took took it in before I whacked that coyote. <laughs> Uh, I saw a log jam on the Clearwater River. It has uh, eight or nine coyotes just come out of the the cavity of a cow elk that was caught in a log jam. They were all feeding upon her, <laughs> and they just came out like ants. And by the time we got all the coyotes shot around that elk, I think we had 11, and we just kept going until we ran out of tank of fuel, and there were we chalked up 88 coyotes. We had a clicker like an umpire. you know. <laughs> yeah. We have a clicker. The pilot would run that. Like how many? Like how many hours was this? Like a morning? Oh, a tank of fuel would be, yeah, two hours, fifteen minutes maximum. I'm I'm guessing again with the helicopter, a little bit more. You're supposed to land with an hour of fuel. Nobody ever does because aircraft starts running better, the lighter it is, the less fuel. Yeah. You have. 
with an airplane, you can easily go three hours. Uh, helicopter, less. Two hours. So 88, I mean, you had to, it was like pretty much, you would oh, shoot a coyote and as fast as you could reload, you're probably on another one. Fast you can shells in, yeah. Fast <laughs> you can go. How big was this lake? Oh, it's a, it's a dwarf heck, pretty good lake up near past Kuski, Idaho, and in that, that part of the state. And it was just the coyotes coming out there. There's so many deer out on that ice breaking through. It, it was just stressing the deer to the hill. So that's why they called us in. That was a good one. Then I got 57 from the fixed wing aircraft, but I've heard of guys getting 144 a, a crew wow. in Nevada. A crew in Idaho, I think they did in the 120s one day. These are very rare days. Yeah, yeah. Getting that many coyotes. A normal day in Utah would, when I was gunning here, if we'd get nine, 10, when I went to Idaho, I thought I'd gone to heaven because we'd get, 24 34 average <laughs> i love it lots of action depends on snow depends on terrain the worst the worst condition to gun in is broken snow you can't see anything yeah, you can't see there. it's even hard to call in so i'd read we all preferred bare ground to broken snow but up in the high country we'd when we'd go helicoptering up on the high forest lands where they ran sheep we wanted to clean the coyotes out preventatively you can see coyotes up there just pushing powder snow with their noses. I mean, they had they had hair growing beneath their paws. They'd been living up there all winter in, in the powder. And so they, we used to actually land and get them, which was stupid. I eliminated that because landing the helicopter to get coyotes just not worth it. It, it became so cost prohibitive. I used to pay $125 an hour to fly a helicopter. And now... When by the time I was doing wolf control and that type, of, you can easily spend three thousand dollars an hour in a helicopter. Yeah, yeah. Planes are much less, but but uh, it was very cheap, and we had a big budget to fly. And I've been in all we we were in old rickety Bell forty sevens like the movie Mash helicopters. <laughs> it's just like these one two piston that helicopters just gave you the jitters to. We got into Bell Jet Ranger twos and threes, and those are amazing aircraft, but they're very expensive. Yeah, that's wild to I me. Mean, I, the whole, I think anybody that's ever hunted coyotes, like that's the dream, is to go up and shoot them out of helicopters. Nowadays, you can buy those trips down in Texas, you know, and jump yeah. in a helicopter and go shoot hogs and some coyotes. You I know, see but... the YouTube's. Yeah, Hughes <laughs> five hundred was another popular helicopter. The military would access those to us, so Hughes five hundred, very good helicopter for gunning yeah that's wild so you know we've talked about aerial gunning obviously you weren't aerial gunning every day i mean what did no, a, what did a typical what did a typical week look like for you as a government trapper oh uh, yeah we only aerial gun we only had a wintertime flying program so the rest of the year i mean i was i'm wired as a hunter so i'd be well every day i would wake up at four o'clock go get a new fresh horse I, all I'd be thinking, Jeff, is which direction's the wind blowing in that canyon? <laughs> we go by how's where's the wind coming from? I mean, that was always on my mind. How am I going to put the sneak on these coyotes that need to die? That are, and so I would. Uh, my arsenal was my rifle. This is before AR plat. Nobody, I didn't know a government trap trapper with a 
with an AR platform. I didn't have one. We all had bold actions, usually 22 250s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, some would shoot 243s, but I had a 22 250, the most probably most unbeatable rifle. Oh, I believe it. Yeah. Never went anywhere without a scabbard and a shooting stick. We had homemade shooting sticks out of oak, put a piece of rubber on them. That was our bipod. We didn't yeah, have yeah. swagger. We didn't have all this stuff. We had super <laughs> crummy binoculars that, that I still have on my wall here. They're kind of antique-ish. That were yeah, military. yeah. And so I never went ever, anywhere without binoculars, but they were government issue, World War II stuff. And uh, so we had cyanide guns. I'd carry those in my saddlebags. Those were still legal. Again, target selective. Uh M44 cyanide gun has just a little capsule about the size of a 38 special. It's filled with sodium cyanide, potassium sodium cyanide. And it's rigged very much like a single shot shotgun. You'd rig it. And then all you see is something about the size of your thumb sticking out of the ground. We'd butter that with some tasty lure that a coyote would like. And with the principle that it was buried in the ground and the coyote, the canine response is to pull up with its teeth and it would trigger this single shot M44. This you'd hear a snap, just and it would spray the cyanide probably three, two and a half, three feet in the air. We always had an antidote kit on our hips. You had to have them. That was one of the EPA regulations that we so to save your life, you had amyl nitrate capsules. If you got some of that on you, you better start busting yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Again. Which way is the wind blowing? <laughs> Never had a problem with, with that. Was we that a powder? Was that a powder or liquid? It's kind of salt type. So I'd say more of a powder, not liquid, not liquid at all. So the, the thing that's always fascinated me, I told you in high school, I got to follow that government trapper for a day. And mm-hmm. these coyotes were laying dead, like within 30, 20, 30 yards of where he had these traps. Yeah. Did you ever... I'm, does it kill them that quick or do they just kind of stumble around and try to spit it out of their mouth and it kills mine them? Always, mine were always further away. I felt really <laughs> had, they were always 30 to hundred yards. I mean, you, you couldn't tell foxes would be slumped right over the, it, you know, foxes will bite us in the same fashion as the coyote yeah. would. They'd be dead right on top of it. But did you ever coyote, watch one? Did you ever, from a distance, did you ever no. see? No, never watched it. It was already the Eagles had already picked them clean before I got there. So you always look for that. You come up and you're, oh, good. A bunch of Eagles got up. There's my coyote. Bunch that's, of ravens taking off. Yeah, that's the same thing that day. We, we'd pull up to some of these coyotes and they'd be half eaten, right? And I was like, and a young kid, you know, I'm like, wow, the coyotes are eating them. And he's like, no, no, no. Coyotes won't eat them. But those are the Eagles no. that are eating them, you know? There's like 26 restrictions that you got to use. There, I don't know of any fatality they've of course killed pets some of that's made the news they will kill a dog but very good tool that i think is underused but the the sodium cyanide when it goes off there's no more of it left in the environment to hurt anything even on the coyote's lips it's all burnt off it just it, it's a get turns into a gaseous form it's gone so we had foothold traps a uh, very important tool to keep around. Neck snares were my favorite. Uh, calling, we we had we did the best we could. Nobody had electronic calls. This is all hand calling. Yeah, yeah. 
we had Weems calls. Uh, Johnny Stewart was making some calls. And so <laughs> we, we invented our own pup yelps with two popsicle sticks with electric tape on the end, you know, any, any funky sound. And, uh, I would go buy from a junkyard a horns off, you know, Model A Fords. Any, I'd fashion out any kind of horn I could use for a howler and rig up a reed like, like we all did out of PVC pipe, cut a little plastic off of your mom's Miracle Whip dish, <laughs> yeah, yeah. tie it down with a rubber band, <laughs> and you, had a, you could howl. And so we'd make our own stuff. Dale Booth was great at that and taught me, and I just took it from there. So we started to get Johnny Stewart cassette tapes, you know, <laughs> super heavy contraptions we'd try, and they actually worked. Yeah, yeah. Where you have different companies now that are making the, the whole world's out there with, with no real skill, just blowing calls of every kind, every kind of sound. Uh, hats off to Lucky Duck and Greg Paulette and what or Paulette, what's his first yeah, Rick. name? Yeah, Rick. Yeah, Ricky. Rick Paulet. Rick Paulet. Paulet. However I'm saying it, Rick, pardon me, but uh, what they've captured as far as audibilizations in the coyote world is fascinating. And what he's recorded is, it's revolutionized everything, but it's made it also so that the real, I mean, I would consider we were pure hunters. You were a pure hunter with every, using every bit of skill you could to get a coyote. And now there's a lot of hacks out there. A lot of amateurs. Yep, yep. Not hunting coyotes a lot. You're just an am. You are an amateur, even though, you know, we want people to do it. But just, I would encourage people to keep rising from that and be excellent, excellent coyote hunter. And they're going to get tougher and tougher as more people get into it. Oh yeah. So you know, from a coyote management standpoint, you know, calling coyotes is probably the least efficient out of all those means, right? It's uh, it actually is pretty good. I mean, my personal best, I want, want to tell you, I killed 22 coyotes calling alone, solo one day. And I got, I think if I ever had a world record besides winning the worlds with Jeff Nimnick and then again with my daughter, Kimberly, we could yeah, talk yeah. about that. First female world coyote calling champion. Heck yeah. You know, I, I shot eight coyotes in without moving positions, eight adult coyotes. So had a lot of fun with that. But uh, what was your main question? Yeah. Like, so, you know, as a government trapper, you know, obviously you probably were able to kill more coyotes, you know, aerial gunning, running snares, running the M44s. So was the calling thing more like, okay, I don't really have nothing to do today. Let's, eh, I'm going to go call them. Or was it something where you said, you know what, I'm, there's a, maybe a specific target coyote that you were going after, and you thought, you know what, I'm going to go try to kill him, call him before I set traps and do this other stuff? It was foremost in my mind every, all the time. If I had a, in the UN, I had a band of sheep, I'd meet the sheep man and the herders at the, what we call the cache every Monday morning. All the, all the Peruvian herders, the Mexican herders, who, you know, whoever was herding would tell me who had the worst coyote killing, I'd ride up with them. First, see if I could call in the coyotes and shoot them. If I couldn't, I'd leave three traps in the ground. That's about all I had. <laughs> and, uh, I'd pack three traps, tell the herder, if you see a coyote, hit him in the head, bring these traps back down next week. And then the, I'd just go on to the next one. Yeah, so yeah. it was an all of the above approach. But for me, I'm a caller. I'm addicted to it. If there's a real 
addiction to this thing and I'll I've taken my wife out calling coyotes called in three one day with her and I go wasn't that great honey and she goes it's like a German shepherd running in like, <laughs> no no it's not it's a <laughs> it's something it's something very unique very special they're beautiful animals they all come in differently that everyone if you don't get your heart rate up every time you're not you're not fully alive as many as I've called, as many of you called, I I can speak for you. Each one is so exciting. Each one oh, it is. is. And you, you remember like out of thousands of coyotes, it's like yeah. pretty easy to remember very specific ones. So we bonded with each other, our children, our my daughters, my sons, friends. And uh, when you call in a coyote, it's, it's, it's an interesting experience. And so... All of the above approach for predator control when you're trying to suppress offending populations or killing livestock. So I would use, I tried to get good at everything. I'd say I was pretty good trapper, excellent snare man. Uh, calling was it. I, I thought I can compete with my peers by out shooting and out, out performing them physically because I would go physically hard with my legs after my horse after I needed to park my horse, I would go hard physically. And I, I thought, hey, I'm the squeaky clean guy. This is a, a rough crowd that I work with. I'm actually rough. I just look, you know, I just look like Boy Scout. Yeah, but yeah. I'm, I'm a killer. <laughs> but the, the way I can compete and get respect with my peers is to shoot well. And so I always pride myself on winning all the competitions when we'd have rendezvous and I got well known that I would, I could make the shot. I was with several of my trappers. We were calling coyotes. There's two of us, three of us. And I saw a coyote about 400 yards away. It's locked up on us. Not going to come. It's in a, on a lambing range. And I finally sat there long enough. Nobody else is going to do anything. All I saw was her head and I just took her out. <laughs> And my boss turned to me and said, shit, kid, you just killed a deer. Now we're in trouble with 50 minutes. I said, no, no, it's a coyote. We went up. It, it was a coyote. <laughs> thought it was so, a deer. Stories like that. I just tried to learn from the best and compete. I mean, in your profession, that's compete by being physically excellent at what I was doing and come through when it counts. So you brought up a good point, you know, something I talk about a lot on here, you know, you talk about your 22250 bolt gun. I mean, how many years straight did you use nothing but that 22250 to kill coyotes with? Probably 25 years till the barrel finally went out of it. It was a, we named it the tack driver. It was so, such a great gun. I had a, a Tasco world-class one scope on it. I mean, three by nine, hundred dollars yeah, yeah. scope. I would. I won the four corners rendezvous with that scope. I never had to adjust it in my scabbard. They can, you know. It, I was poor. I went with what I had. I bought this twenty two two fifty when I was eighteen. I was just glad to have one. Put a Tasco on it. I never had to re recite the gun in, and so that just stayed with me. Getting beaten up, had a horse run off of it one day. Just you know, it was horse. It blew up. Went galloping down the mountain 
miles and I was jogging down the mountain. I saw a stick laying in a meadow and I thought I'll just head toward that stick to catch my horse. Well, that was this 22250 oh, sticking geez. there. I never would have found it again. God made it stick in the mud. <laughs> so we love that gun. It's down in the basement of my house and uh, it's on display with iron bars behind it. You yeah, yeah. Someday. yeah. <laughs> so you, uh, you know, and I know you're a phenomenal shot. I mean, running coyotes, you know, you would roll them out there running. It didn't matter. You know, when I first started hunting around you, you kind of had kind of switched over and were trying to get into like the 223s and the 300 blackouts and stuff that was a lot slower. You kind of, I, I know, you know, I just remember you being kind of frustrated because now you you weren't shooting this 4,000 feet per second rifle anymore. You, you were trying to shoot the AR platform. Did you feel like all that 2250 velocity is, was ingrained in your in your shooting and then you went to all of a sudden this new platform and, and it was like damn i can't yeah. hit the coyotes that i'm used to killing because i'm shooting this whole new caliber it was a real problem i mean to all of a sudden go to huskama three thousand dollar scope can't hit these coyotes <laughs> on a dead run like i'm just i could crumple it with 22 250 yeah yeah if i don't hit him this first time i'm gonna hit him the second time <laughs> but it was very frustrating different optics bigger zoom I didn't like it. The blackout didn't work. I thought that's going to be the ticket. No, it's not. Yeah. Just, <laughs> it's not what you need. Uh, so I've finally gone back. I've gone full circle to, to you know, we do suppressed. We have, we, uh, the most I do is, I do have a long range 6.5 Creedmoor. I don't like it that much because uh, it's a good long range gun, which, uh, but for most of my shots, I'm shooting 200 yard shots. Yeah. Yeah. I'm shooting 80, 200 yard shots, or I'm whacking them with a shotgun jumping on top. <laughs> yeah. That's what we prefer. Let them yeah. come. Yeah. Yeah. Let them cross the dead zone. Yeah. Yeah. Don't anybody move. And then uh, just forget everything, pick up the shotgun, hose them down. <laughs> um, no, that's a good point. You know, cause I talk about that. You'll, I, a lot of coyote hunters, I think bounce all around You know, they got 10 different rifles in their gun safe, you know, and every time they go coyote hunting, they take a different one and they wonder why they can't get good at killing coyotes, right? Like yeah. me, I've, I've shot the same damn rifle for 20, you know, freaking years, you yeah. know, so, and like you shooting your 22 to 50 for all those years. Yeah. You've gone a level above. I, I went back to a level below you with the, with the Leopold, you know, the dialed in stuff, everything you can range it. I don't even do that yet. I'm still Kentucky winding it. <laughs> I do a lot of that and it's just kind of what works for me yeah yeah uh, when people tell me I shot a coyote at you know 400 or 700 yard 400 you should hit them you know you do but uh, 700 yards well they're not going to hit them at 30 yeah <laughs> <They're gonna> <laughs> I just think you got to be well you got to have, have an all around game in the coyote hunting world Oh, hundred percent. What works for you, but it's about going physically hard, getting as many stands in the day like you do, just doing smart stands, going physically hard. If you can't physically go hard, you get there geographically, nothing's going to happen. Yep. Yeah, that's that's a great point. A another crap. thing, another thing too that you have a, a really unique perspective on is, I've talked, we, I had we've talked about this whole new thermal hunting game, right? Everybody's getting into the thermals. Now there's a lot more guys doing the night hunting. 
it seems to me like there's a lot more guys hunting coyotes year round now than there ever has been. Right. Like, you know, old school coyote hunters, they like typically would only hunt them during the first season months. Right. Other than government trappers. Right. They'd hunt them in the fall and the winter when there were something, then they'd leave them alone right. the rest of the year. Right. Right. But you as a government trapper, you were hunting them 365 as a, as a means of, of keeping the numbers down. I'm just, I'm curious to see where we're going to go as a group of coyote hunters. If more and more guys are thermal hunting year round now than ever has been, I, I'm just, I'm fascinated to, yeah. to kind of know where's that going to put us, you know, as far as coyote hunting goes, there's going to be more coyotes than ever. The coyotes going to get smarter. I, I just don't know. What, what's your take on that? It's very noticeable out there. I mean, it's totally no, anybody who's doing the thermal world notice it's, it's having an impact. The coyotes are getting smarter to that, but they're, I think it's going to actually suppress them in some, some areas because these are highly advanced pieces of technology you're looking through. Yeah. It just works. And they're the coyotes like coyotes do, they will wise up to it. It's going to be tougher. You can tell that the amateurs are out there. They're spending tons of money on these things. You have to, I'd still recommend thermals because just for, self-preservation as much as anything thermals is what your enemy's gonna have <laughs> yeah you better have everything that yeah. your enemy has in this crazy world of uh human predators yeah you better yeah have everything and you better be prepared for what what's going on because that's what they see you with so i don't i don't like the trend of thermals i'm noticing the difference i uh you still have to be a good shot there are guys that are running thermal thermals that are very good at it yep and it's and it is a great tool it's a good wildlife management tool it's kind of super high tech it wouldn't be ethical in any other type of hunting context other than coyotes not ethical for big game or anything but uh it's out there and it's going to have an impact from a coyote from a coyote number standpoint you know we, we you and i both know we only get one crop of coyotes a year right yeah but coyotes do move around, you know, you have these transient coyotes moving and you got these dominant pairs that have their set up little territories and dens and things like that. From your experience, when you were out doing denning and decoy dogging and things like that throughout the summer months, would you see a, a significant reduction in maybe the coyotes you would see maybe later on in the fall in those areas? Or did you not ever really, did it really ever matter? Like give it a few months and there'd be coyotes back in there no matter what. Yeah. It seemed like, uh, you can temporarily solve the problem. You can, you can temporarily shut it down, but the coyotes, there's always a coyote hopping through an area looking for a niche and they can tell when they got a niche, that's unoccupied. It is a complete renewable resource in today's. Yeah. Yeah. The, the niches are going to fill up the good, the same old denning grounds are going to fill up because coyotes select for those certain characteristics where they want to have dens and they, they reoccur there no matter if you remove pair after pair i see it and for idaho i'm not i believe now utah i see it whole all the intermountain states inexhaustible renewable resource we're not going to eradicate these coyotes they're going <laughs> to they're going to keep using their genetic fitness which genetic fitness is how fit is a species to survive the coyote the coyote maxes out in about 16 traits to have the greatest genetic fitness for survivability. And one of them is finding out who's home here. 
who's using this? This has everything I like. Can I stick around here? You know, nobody's here. I'm taking it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that I and then they they are wired to we will breed, we will reproduce. They will shut up in the spring. I mean, uncannily, they shut up. They will raise those pups. And then they have the uh, this uh, greatest display of altruism to defend their pups too, where they will put down their own life. I mean, they'll lay their life on the line. When you have a dog, that's why we all had decoy dogs to get another canine out of there. If they feel like their pups are distressed, Coyotes show me more than any species I've ever seen, other than our mean cows on the ranch. <laughs> the altruism. I will do anything to get my genetics represented in the next generation. I'm going to get, I will put my own out there to be harvested and so that my pups can survive. Kyle, you've seen that a lot. Yeah. But, but hence the, hence the, 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 the significance of using pup distresses and pup, you know, the coyote fights and those types oh, of sounds, yeah. right? I mean, that's yeah. what we're, that's what we're using against the coyote when we're playing sounds like that. Yeah. Now that I'm not a professional, I don't, I will hunt coyotes in the spring. I'll never get over liking that around, you know, I call the pinnacle about the 10th of May when those pups are the size of a house cat, they got a hundred yard playground. Yeah. I love that time of year. The adults are very aggressive, but other than that, I leave them be and I don't, I don't like September hunting. Don't send me a picture of coyotes you shot in September, October. <laughs> a little milk on their lips still. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> don't don't tell me you're a coyote hunter and hunting coyotes in September. <laughs> Even October. But it's interesting. You start getting in November. And these coyotes, now they're smart. Every week, incrementally, November 7th, 14th, incremental December. These things are getting smart. January coyotes, end of January, you and I did a competition in Wyoming with my yeah. son. We are happy to get three coyotes. Yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they get tough, and they incrementally tough. You're getting coyotes end of January. You know what you're doing. I mean, if you say we only got three, hey, that's a good day. Oh, heck yeah. Yeah, If you see a coyote, that's... <laughs> you see so, one. <laughs> you get smart. But they get toward, you know, that breeding season. Then they just shut up and they will produce. They just kind of lay low. And I yeah, think that's, that's amazing. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, that's what I've always loved about coyote hunting is the fact that I wish everybody was an awesome coyote hunter, right? Like, no matter if how awesome, you know, we could kill as many coyotes as we possibly could. But guess what? There's going to be that many more. And there's probably going to be even a higher percentage of younger dumb ones next year. Right. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. Yeah. We're not going to wipe them out. <laughs> environmentalists, don't worry about it. No hard feelings against coyotes. We like, we like them better than you do. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> so We're obviously coyotes, coyotes weren't the only thing that, that you dealt with, you know, as a government trapper, you know, I, I know you dealt with lions every now and then. And specifically, you know, what's fascinating to me too, which is, which you have a unique perspective on is the wolf reinduction, you know, introduction into Idaho, you know, and, and you were part of some of that with, with your government trapping work, right? Right. So, yeah, we, we did a lot of bear and lion work in Idaho and Utah and Idaho, the States, not so much in Wyoming, didn't have any troubles with bears, but it was something we were trained in, even up to grizzly bears but Idaho had uh, grizzlies, a lot of black bears. We'd, we would foot snet, snare the black bears. We'd chase them with hound dogs, only on a corrective basis. If we knew that bear had killed, say, the sheep, 
So we would take, you know, we would, we'd take a half a dozen bears a year per man in Idaho, uh, less lions in Utah. The, the lions exploded about 1991, 1989. I, I personally took about uh, 18 mountain lions in one year. So that would be a lot. Most of those with neck snares, some with mountain lion foothold traps, oh, wow. some treed with the lion hunter helping me. Uh, so we did all that. So when wolf reintroduction was proposed for Yellowstone, uh, it was proposed that they release uh, 30, 40 wolves from Canada into Idaho and Yellowstone. So they did. And the buy-off from the, the environmental impact statement said that our agency, which was USDA Wildlife Services at the time, would be responsible for the lethal control of wolves that killed livestock. So there wasn't going to be a problem as long as, and I said, okay, we could go along with that. I agree. We don't know anything about wolves, but we know how to kill stuff and we'll learn more <laughs> about wolves. And uh, it's going to take a lot of, lot more money. So they reintroduced wolves. By the way, the environmental impact statement said a recovered wolf population would look like 100 adult wolves in Montana uh, Yellowstone and Idaho. 100, huh? 100, yeah, that's recovered. <laughs> it took, it took, wolves were not delisted by, by the agency, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service going through the steps to delist them. They were delisted by Congress because there are so many hundreds and thousands, I mean, thousands now of wolves in Idaho. Probably it's safest for me to say two. 2,000, 3,000 would not be an exaggeration. I don't know how many in Montana, maybe a thousand or more. Yellowstone, there's hundreds and hundreds alone in Yellowstone. So they're recovered. They're a big game species in Idaho. Anybody can harvest them during a season. And so they're very common. But I, I personally lethally killed the first wolf after reintroduction. I trapped a wolf. No kidding. It was, it was killing cattle. For the now current governor of Idaho, they were killing his cattle. Governor Brad Little called me and said, "I got, I got a hell of an animal killing these cattle. <laughs> the track's huge." So I said, "Let me get up there, set a trap, and uh, went home and said, check it in the morning. Call me." And he said, "You got some amazing beast in there. He's torn up the whole country. And it was a 132-pound male wolf. It's." Uh, its color was B23 or 24, and it was Fish and Wildlife Service tags. I called the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and said, no, there is no B23. It was euthanized up in Canada. It bit a guy in the thumb, so we euthanized. I said, no, you didn't. You released it in <laughs> Idaho. It's killing livestock. <laughs> so it, I was in the wolf saga, all the wolf wars and the drama of the reintroduction, which was not popular in Idaho and it's kind of been an environmental catastrophe to the elk and deer. I don't think the elk have ever fully rebounded in Idaho. They're doing fine where there are no wolves and they're struggling where there are wolves. But I've seen the elk sort of adapt also to the wolf population, but very interesting time where we're uh, controlling wolves that were killing livestock. Where, I think you know that did. first time you and I wolf hunted, we went up to kind of where you where you told me they originally introduced the wolves, kind of up in that central part of Idaho. 
you did work up there initially, right? When they, yeah, they put I'll those wolves up in there too. Frank Church, Frank Church, the River of No Return Wilderness. That's where I took you. And they they were reintroduced right there at headwaters, the Salmon River, well, uh, and uh, at Dagger Falls. So they they're all and they're all throughout that area that where I took you. Right now, you can I mean that's big time wolf country. Well, the entire most of the state of Idaho is, but but they they really were prolific and the packs were very abundant, and we had problems. I think to this day, the federal government kills about 80, 90 wolves a year. I haven't read the recent reports in Idaho. I'm just talking Idaho. Yeah. They kill 50, 60 in Montana, I'm sure. Plenty in Wyoming. And sportsmen are harvesting, I'd say, 300 to 450 wolves a year in Idaho alone. you got to have a lot of wolves to harvest 400 <laughs> wolves. Be more than 100, huh? Yeah, more than more than <laughs> what a yeah, that's the joke. Yeah. So did you get to did you get to collar some wolves? Like when you went back in there, did you ever were you ever part of collaring kind of the new generation yeah. of wolves a year or two after they reintroduced them? Well, we were the guys that knew how to trap stuff. So I told them we will go hang collars on wolves. So now USDA was being paid by US Fish and Wildlife Service for monitoring. And I would go on, I would set up these 10 day sorties of going back in the wilderness of trapping wolves and hanging wolves, hanging collars on wolves so that we could find out who's there, where are these things going? So I did, I did a lot of that capturing wolves all throughout central Idaho, releasing them. And then I'd always tell everybody, don't shoot the ones with the collar on them. That tells you so much data. They <laughs> They call them Judas wolves. They will out everybody else. Those <laughs> wolves with collars told us, oh my gosh, everybody's in the middle fork of the Salmon River. These packs are all meshing together. We got way more wolves than what we thought. And uh, one time I caught, I went back in the wilderness, 30 miles one way on horse, horseback, got into a pack that was howling, set a trap, caught a 80-pound pup, put a collar on him, and then the elk season started. And then a, a, a hunter who had hired an outfitter saw my wolf with the collar on it and shot it. He was busted. Some guy that had never committed a crime in his life, but the outfitter <laughs> turned him in. And I just saw him. He cut the collar off the wolf. All that's illegal. And I told him, don't ever shoot the ones with the collars on them. <laughs> that took me a lot of work to get in there to, to get that much data to, to monitor and find out what we had. And, I think some of my efforts bore a lot of fruit to show, wow, wolves are doing just fine. Wow, there's way more than what we thought. Wow, let's delist them. No, we can't delist them. We don't have enough time passage yet. And they did, but the agency was not going to bust a move to delist wolves. So they, Congress stepped in and we delisted them legislatively. You have to do that sometimes. Oh, yeah. yeah. So did you ever... Did you ever get to a point there towards the end where you where you like to 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 manage the wolves better than the coyotes, or was it still always always the coyotes? Was that always number one? No, coyotes number one. I mean, it's what an amazing animal. They crank each other out. They look almost identical. They can live. They they are more. They have more this genetic fitness that I'm talking about than a coyote, than a wolf. They are more genetically fit for survival than wolves are. 
they're smaller package, smaller target. They're, they can live off, you know, a wolf requires lots of chunks of meat and big hunks of bone to survive and coyotes live off nothing. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I enjoyed the wolf work. It was always met with, I had to go back and report to the media, a lot of scrutiny. Oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, I is just the world is what had become of the world. Everybody's second guessing you. Everybody's saying you, you got it wrong. And uh, that came along with, with the wolf world, the wolf lovers, you know, and we all, if you're a hunter, you value all wildlife and you love them all. All oh, the sure. Creatures, but uh, you don't, you don't control the wolves. You let the wolves run rampant, human wolves, real wolves. You got a problem on your hands. You <laughs> limit your tools to manage the predator species, and you're you're not going to have any anything left for a future generation. We inherited such a great America full of the sportsman heritage, Jeff. And if you love wildlife in America, like Yellowstone or beyond, you better thank a hunter. You better thank a sportsman. Well, for sure, they, are yeah. the one, they are the only ones that fund it. They say there's little funds that somebody's protecting the butterfly, but sportsmen <laughs> fund conservation. Sportsmen want rules. They want regulations. They want abundant flocks and herds. They will pay for it. And because of that, the United States, amidst a huge booming human population, has amazing wildlife populations. My, wildlife, by and large, is alive and well. And you better thank a hunter. They buy the duck stamps. They buy the licenses. They want the they want the law enforcement. They want the season regulations. Yep. They want predator control, <laughs> and you need that. What What year did you finally hang up your government trapper badge? Move on in About, life. Uh, I went to work. Uh, U.S. Senator from Idaho, Mike Crapel, called me about 2005. Said I've done my homework. I want to hire you to be my state director in Idaho. I said, Senator, you could not have done your homework. <laughs> let me check with my wife. And yeah, we went. Spent a great, great uh, thirteen or fourteen years with Senator Mike Crapel, and he was fantastic policy wise. Just a great uh, altruistic politician. Yeah, yeah. He loves hunting, Second Amendment, all those values that we we love in America. He he let me have a voice at a political level. And that took me on to the Trump administration where I was involved with in the presidential transition team and then the Environmental Protection Agency, which I enjoyed my time there in Washington, DC. And back to uh, USDA looking out after rural America, where I told President Trump, let me keep a pulse on rural America. And there's a, a set, there's an organization that'll do that. And I'll give you feedback on how, how is the flyover country doing? How are the people doing? So I had quite a route from that $14,066 a year. I was going to say, it's a pretty crazy journey. It's been a great journey. All the time raising eight wonderful children, having a great supportive wife with, uh, you know, motivated hunter, motivated sportsman. We all have ADD. <laughs> we, we're, yeah. we're, we're driven. All the time I was working in all this, we build up a ranching and farming operation. And I'm in Southern Utah and my sons are helping me and doing their own businesses in Idaho. We have a ranch in Nevada we're involved with. So I'm we're scattered out and just 
living the life. We're busy, but nothing, nothing's more interesting to us than hunting. Really. Yeah. You know, you've been at, you've been out of the government trapper world for, you know, roughly almost 20 years. Do you still stay in contact with some guys or follow kind of what they're doing nowadays or how, have things changed quite a bit over the last 20 years in that program or? No, we keep in touch. I mean, everybody's getting a little bit of age on them, but we keep in touch. We, tr we try to watch out for each other and see how people are doing. So we, it's a tight knit group of people that understand each other. I mean, and you spend a lot of nights in camp together just like you and me. Well, nobody can equal you and me, but just the bond <laughs> we have, it's a, it's a family type deal, even though it was a job and we got in the trenches battling, you know, we battled environmentalists, government agencies, you know, we, we had a lot of time we spent together and we developed great deep friendships. Yep. Nothing welds you together though, than having an exciting time chasing a lion or getting a coyote. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think, do you think down the road, do you think the government trapping program is something that's going to be around in a hundred years? Or do you think it's probably, you know, on its downslope? Where, where do you see that, that program down the, the day road? I went to take the job, an old timer looked at me and said, just enjoy it, boy. We're about done in three or four months. <laughs> three so, or four months. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to predict it. It'd be foolish to do away with some sort of lethal control, protection of private property. You know, livestock is a proper role of government function of some sort. It should be a private public sector function. You're always going to need predator control because truly the lion does not lay down with the lamb. Yeah, yeah. The people that don't believe that predators kill things and kill private property and kill your public wildlife, they're, they're fools. It's not biologically correct. Yep. And so I hope we have it. Uh, I hope we have a Second Amendment. I mean, these are things we'll fight for. We won't, we aren't going to just take it. We're going to have that. We're not going to follow all these third world socialist communist countries <laughs> that have no wildlife, no rights, yeah. no liberties, because they first, they take away your guns. Then they take away your money. Then they take away everything else you ever loved. And my father, my uncles, my brothers didn't fight in those wars to keep America free and give us this great country for me to not do my part when it comes time to fight for things I'm willing to fight for. And there are just certain things that keep us free. And it's out, you know, looking for and pursuing the wildlife of America and roaming about. That's what fuels you and me. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what builds families. That's what builds good kids. It, it builds, uh, builds us to, to, have this great country and pass it on and to another generation and better than what we found it. So I'm, I'm an optimist. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I think it's going to be around. I think, you know, if Biden didn't do away with it, then we're, then we're safe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody likes to eat meat. So yeah. they're, they're not the horsepower to get rid of those programs right now, but there's a lot of crazy ideas. Uh, never trust most politicians. I mean, there's very few that care that care about America as much as they say they care about America. It's very rare. Yeah, yeah. I care about America. I you care about it, and uh, I just want to be able to pass on the great times and the great places that we remember growing up. The great memories you have, you want to preserve all that and pass it on to your grandchildren and children for sure. 
and enjoy it here while you're trying to figure out what you want to be when you grow up. <laughs> well, you know, you're one of the few guys I know that's that's been around coyote hunting as long as you've had, you know, if you have been. Um, you know, what what's probably the biggest thing, the biggest change in coyote hunting that you've seen over the last 40 years, you know, since you started calling coyotes back in the 80s or even earlier than that? Oh, you can't even compare about the, you know, AR platform to a, Benelli Super Black Eagle extended to a sandstorm suppressor and the technology end of it is just incredible. And the regulation of it, the, you know, I, I would not want to be a government trapper. Too many rules, too many reports. Yeah, yeah. Uh, too many limitations. I did it when you were free. We were free. We were good. We had nobody looking over our shoulders telling us anything. And so that was, that was good. We were trustworthy. We knew how to keep the wildlife laws, and, but we were, we had physically had to get around and do a lot of things. And so that's probably the biggest change is technology and there's no end in sight to what's going to happen. You talk about thermals, uh, that's going to have an impact on coyote hunting activities for sure. Uh, just to squeeze and the development, the human expansion, it's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but I need to take a second to tell you a little bit about Sig Sauer Optics and specifically the Sierra 6 lineup of rifle scopes that I'm currently running. Built upon the Sierra 3 award-winning technology and the Sig Sauer BDX Ballistic Data Exchange technology, the Sierra 6 family of rifle scopes provides the hunter and marksman with an intelligent auto holdover specific to their ballistics, target, and environment. Pairing a Sierra 6 rifle scope to a BDX-equipped rangefinder allows users to bring the capability of applied ballistics into the field without the need for a mobile device. Now, to put that more simply, if you're looking for a way to shoot coyotes, especially the ones that hang up out there three, four, five hundred yards and don't want to come in any closer, which we all know happens, you know, this system will allow you to consistently put bullets on target at those ranges. So if you're in the market for a new rifle scope or even a new rangefinder, visit sigsour.com. Now back to the podcast. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I always think about that, you know, where 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 are we headed? You know, what's what's the next big technological advance that's come gonna come along to help us, you know, some guys are hoping for the hack, like you said, right? What's going to make it easier for us to all kill coyotes where we don't have to really just put in the, the legwork, you know, and learn it on our own. You know? You'll have the drone shoot my coyote for me. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. Well, it's crazy. I've had some people suggest, hey, why doesn't Lucky Duck design a drone that will carry the call and you fly it out there and set the call down and then fly the drone back? Just, I'm like, come on, that's getting pretty man. lazy. You don't want to walk out 40 yards, put a call. I don't like that. I don't like, I think we need to go back to old using a 30, 30 lever action. I got several of them in the house. We got to go back to old iron sights. And the old and, hand calling a couple of things, a lip balm in your pocket, right? A little bit of lip balm. <laughs> lip squeaking, that is lethal. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> well, before, before I let you go, Lane, any we we talked a lot. You've told me a lot of cool stories. Any one cool story that we didn't talk about that's kind of at the top of your head when it came? You got, well, you got a cool one we could finish this sucker into, on? Getting into this World Coyote Calling Competition contest that you and I won in 2014. Yeah. Those All these competitions have been fun. 
I've I just got to make mention to kind of chide my sons. I've taken second and third with my sons. Yeah, yeah. But in 2020, I won it with the first female ever. My daughter Kimberly. She was 26 years old. She's my partner in worlds. We went hard, and I won the world championship with my daughter. The second coyote I shot that morning was across an ice frozen river. I watched her just bail off, you know, tear off whatever she needed to tear off. And uh, <laughs> super fit girl, just stunning, gorgeous daughter. And she swam the river, drug a coyote back across. I mean, <laughs> That's hardcore. Is, and she was totally badass and hardcore. <laughs> and to do that with her was really fun. So we... I, I think just so many things, it's a lifestyle for me. It's it's breathing the air. It's being wide awake out on a hillside, just glassing things, not glassing things, being out in the out of doors. My son swore off Nintendo and video games when they were 12 on their own. They, went, they wanted to focus on baseball, football, basketball, hunting, horses, fishing, camping. Yeah, important so stuff, yeah. This is, that, these are things that, that's going to be vital to keeping our kids well-rounded and grounded. 100%. Make them be good citizens so they can pay our social security and <laughs> serve in our military. We need the warriors to defend us. Thanks for your service, Jeff. You're Semper Fi, the Marines. Yeah. And all it's super important that I help raise up and do my peony part to raise up good men and women that are going to defend, defend us and be warriors when we need them. Cause you're going to need them. Well, one of these days, one of these days, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I, I, I've been wanting to make it back out. It's been a few years since I've been out, been out to, to see you guys and hunt. I think I'd love to come out. I'd love to bring the filming crew one of these times, man. And we come out and we, now that we're not so much worried about, you know, maybe contests and stuff like that. I think it'd be fun just to, to bring the camera guys one time, come out West and, and uh, watch you rake some of these coyotes with, with the shotgun. <laughs> let's just do it i just need just warning you i need five minutes notice Jim. five minutes notice <laughs> well you are pretty much semi-retired now see so uh, you got yeah, till 2024 till you're gonna have to work again yeah that's right <laughs> we're uh we've got plenty to do but yeah with you i need five minutes notice but five minutes we'll, we'll be ready to go <laughs> it'd be a pleasure come on out i'll take you to some of my unspeakable honey holes nah, i like it that's what we yeah. like to film on, right? Those virgin so ears. To, so fun to go with you again. Are you mean a lot to our family? God bless you and your family. From your dad to all my other Nebraska friends I've met through you. Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate the ethics you bring to the, the seriousness you bring to it, and the edge you bring to it, to the sport of calling coyotes. And I, I just appreciate everything you're that, that's part of your makeup, Jeff. Baseball, apple pie mom in america that's right <laughs> well it's always been fun man i've always always you know enjoyed our times we spent together it's looking forward to it down the road when we get together again and your boys and it'll be it'll be fun it'll be some more mountain dew monster drinks and rock stars and we're up <laughs> PBJs, pbjs and we're good to go that's right that's right <laughs> well thanks again for being on the episode man i hope everybody enjoyed this this it's been great. I, I loved your stories. Your take, you know, your first government trapper I've had on, we've talked about a little bit here and there, but you know, I, I thought it was some great information you shared with everybody to, to really give them just the background on the program and, and uh, you know, how it all started, where it's going. So my pleasure, Jeff. 
Well, I want to thank everybody for listening to another episode here of Eastman's Predator Pros. Um, you know, without you guys listening, we wouldn't have this podcast. So I want to thank you for your support and all the uh, the great reviews and, and positive responses that you give the uh, the podcast. So thank you to you guys for doing that. If you're wanting any information about myself, the easiest way to find that uh, is just to go to my website, which is coyotecraze.com. You can find links to uh, the Last Stand video series on YouTube. You can find links to the, the predator hunting schools I put on um articles i've written everything like that just a, a coyote killer's knowledge base that that you want to find so you can go there at coyotecraze.com and of course we couldn't do this without the sponsors uh so got to thank them lucky duck predator calls swagger bipods black rifle coffee company cryptech silencer central onyx hunt six hour optics and hornady and of course the whole eastman's family for bringing this all to you guys uh, couldn't do without without them so if you're in the in the big game market wanting to learn about tag hub and all the other services they offer you can go to eastmans.com so until next time i want to thank you guys for listening to another episode and we'll catch you right here next time on the eastmans predator pros podcast <laughs>